is from Ephesians chapter 2, which is on page 1174, verses 11 to 22. Yes. 1174 in the Red Bibles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay. So, um, if, if you're just joining with us, we're in the middle of some series called Death by Love. There's some topical sermons looking at the cross and how it changes our lives and and today our topic is reconciliation so um we're going to keep ephesians 2 open we'll be back there and um let me pray for us and then we'll think about reconciliation together lord we thank you for uh, your word we thank for the bible that we have here the very words of god that have been written down for us. Thank you that your word is so powerful, it's so true. It not only describes life as we experience it, but it actually changes our lives as it goes to work in us. Thank you that by your spirit, your word has the power to bring reconciliation. Because of what Jesus has done, we thank you for that and we pray that today we might experience and know reconciliation in our lives. Amen. Amen. Got a little surprise for those who have been here today. Here's the surprise. It's two people this week. It's two people. This is who I want to introduce you to, Jack and Paul. They are both members in the same church, not this church. They've been friends for a long time. But in truth, they've never had a very easy relationship. They kind of rub each other up the wrong way. And they manage to keep it under control and kind of get along and keep, kind of keep that polite, cool distance from one another. So stuff just kind of worked. But then they were put on the same hospitality team together. And it got a whole lot harder, doesn't it, when you have to work with someone closely uh, that you find it difficult to be around. You see, part of the issue is that Paul is always late. He's unreliable. He flakes last minute all the time. And then when he is there, he doesn't really muck in. So Jack, kind of knowing Paul, knew it would be like that. And, and when he started to see that happening, it really, really got to him. 
And so he would snap at Paul. He would be rude and kind of passive-aggressive and bossy. And that was how their relationship kind of went. It was just bubbling along like that. And then two months ago, Paul didn't turn up at all on a given Sunday when he was meant to be on. And it was a nightmare of a Sunday, and everything went wrong. And for Jack, he was just like, he just he thought he looked really stupid and uh, because um, in front of lots of people because stuff wasn't done. And he thought, well, that's unfair. It's Paul's fault and not mine, and I'm the one who kind of looks stupid here. And so he's, he's really annoyed. And, and Jack, just kind of sounding off at people about this, about what Paul's done, dropping these little hints, how Paul doesn't really care and he's not reliable, and, you know, those kind of little things in conversations. In particular, Jack spoke to Marie. He knew Marie loves a good chat about this kind of stuff, even when it's nothing to do with her. So he thought, I'll go, I'll go and talk to her about it. And, uh, and she egged him on and feeling annoyed with Paul and, and, and made him feel really justified. And then Marie went and told Janet that Jack was really annoyed with Paul. And Janet told Barry the whole thing. And Barry thought it was a bit silly. So he actually wound up winding up, you know, kind of bantering Jack about it and being like, oh, you're being a bit, bit silly here. Janet also told Paul how annoyed Jack was. So, um, and, and, and how unreasonable she thinks he's being. And so now Paul's annoyed that Jack's going around talking to other people about him, but not really talking to him about it and spreading all of this negative stuff. All around these little seeds of disunity being sown. And Jack and Paul just kind of keeping away from one another. Paul says he has no problem with Jack. He'll just keep away from him and it'll be okay. You know, we'll just keep, we'll just keep away. Keep the peace. See, sounds a bit silly, doesn't it? But isn't that quite true to life? Not the biggest thing, not the biggest situation, but it's funny how those little things, little gripes and annoyances, and those little niggles can have a massive impact. And how hard it can be to actually then forgive someone and let those little grudges go. I mean, I could have gone with a much bigger and more significant and deeper example, because we have all of these little niggles, but probably also we have much bigger stuff, where people who are Christians have sinned against us greatly. It's had a massive impact on our whole life. And we think, I just don't know if I can forgive them. just don't know if I can forgive them for that. Can't forgive them for that. Jesus is our reconciliation. Looking at these big Bible words with really quite simple ideas in this series. And this is the the simple idea of reconciliation. By his death on the cross, Jesus makes peace between us and God. He unites his people together as one. And one day he'll bring lasting peace to the whole world. Basically, reconciliation is this. By the cross of Christ, Jesus restores everything that's been broken apart. He puts everything that's been torn apart back together. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It sounds good, doesn't it? But then you think, well, how does it actually make a difference in that nitty-gritty kind of the real life when you're just mad with someone because they've done it again? How does it actually make a difference when you just can't get on? Well, listen, it's peace from God. It is peace from God that is our only true hope for dealing with conflict. And actually, we, we had our reading from Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174. Do keep it open. Um, it's in this book, Ephesians. We're, we're going to spend a bit of time in other parts of the group, book because this letter of, of, of Ephesians gives us what I call the peace 
project, the peace project in, in three stages. Uh, and here's the first one. Receive peace with God. You can flip back over to, to the page before if you want, at the start of chapter 2. And there, Paul, who's writing this letter, describes what is a cosmic rebellion in God's world that all people are involved in. He talks about people, writes about them following the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air who leads, that's Satan leading this rebellion against God, people following the desires of their heart, turning away from the good creator God's. Effectively, it is a declaration of war against God by people. And God, in his goodness, won't stand by while enemy forces of sin and death and evil and destruction ravage his world. He's a good God. He won't just let that happen. And so God himself goes to war to rid the world of sin and people of evil. And so the way Paul describes it there in chapter 2 is that he puts this judgment of death on to end sin. So you've got this war with two sides. They're they're, they're kind of against one another. And like any war, when you've got two sides, they're separate and they're estranged. And there's a visible depiction of that in the Bible. The, The picture is in the temple in Jerusalem where there's this massive curtain, this thick curtain in the middle of the temple Uh, and it separates the presence of God from people. And it's a clear marker of this separation. Uh, And and the the, the curtain is only, if you like, breached once a year. We've seen it earlier in the series, on the Day of Atonement, when there's like this temporary ceasefire. And through the sacrifice of animals, uh, the, the high priest goes in and can conduct the rituals that are required on the Day of Atonement. Well, that's good for the Jews, but there's nothing like that for the non-Jews who lived before Jesus. So, so we read in our reading, back there in chapter 2, 1174, verse 12, Paul describes people as being separate from Jesus without hope and without God in the world. Later on in verse 19, he calls us foreigners and strangers. At war with God and away from God. A curtain there, separating. That is until that curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That, that, that is like God tearing that curtain open. That moment, this, that separation is dealt with. It's kind of a, a visual image of, of hostility being over, of peace being available. God with people. And the moment that happens, Mark tells us in his true story of Jesus, is when the very moment when Jesus dies on the cross. Verse 13 of our our reading of, of Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, it's the cross of Christ. It's Jesus' death on the cross that came and brought us near. It's the cross that won for us true peace. To to have peace in a war, you've got to have the end of hostility from both sides. Both sides have have to have to stop fighting, if you like. And Jesus' cross does that. We've seen that it absorbs the full wrath and and the good anger of God. 
And also his cross comes and gives us new hearts, new hearts that love God and that seek God. And so it is peace with people and God, peace for us and God. So much more than some kind of temporary ceasefire. Imagine, it's hard for us to imagine, so many of us, because some of us may have maybe have had this kind of experience, but many haven't. Imagine living in a war-torn land, ravaged by war. And then you hear the news that war is over forever. You're liberated. This is that kind of news. That's the kind of news where people go out and have parties in the street and celebrate and dance and shout and sing, enjoying their freedom. That is what has happened with Christians and God. Paul writes in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household. See, this is, this is stage one of the peace project, and it is to receive peace with God. If you haven't yet received peace with God, if you are still rebelling from God and rejecting him and holding him away and ignoring him, then the good news today is that in Jesus he offers a peace treaty. It's signed. It's kind of signed in his blood. The question is, will you accept that? Will you receive that? Or will you stay at war? Will you stay in your rebellion? Now, if you are a Christian, then you have received that peace with God. And do you know what that means? It means stop living as if you're in war and live in freedom. Don't live under the terrors of wartime, but enjoy the blessings of peacetime. You could say to, to Jack and to Paul, your heart has been changed through knowing peace with God. Remember what you were. Remember what in Christ, God has done. Remember what you now are and be glad. Remember these things. Live free. Live at peace with God. That's stage one. Stage two is this. This is where it really starts to, uh, to dig in. It's to protect peace with each other. The situation, I think, is a, a bit like this. When two people get married, the official in the church says, uh, towards the end of that, the vows, once they've made their promises, says this, those who God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, when two people get married, something significant happens where God makes two people one. And in marriage, that is to be received and to enjoy and protected. Was the same reality in the church. We are made one by the Father through the work of the Son in the Spirit. And we can say what God has joined together, where he has made one, let no one separate, let no one tear apart. See, our unity is a gift to us from God that is to be enjoyed and protected and received. That's why later in, in, in this letter, Paul writes to Christians, he says, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's something that's established that needs to be kept and protected. It's 
not something we have to create. The issue is this. When we become estranged from God, when we're far from God, all of life pressures. And so we start to find that we have division in our relationships with other people. We know that, don't we? Relationships with others are difficult. And it's always been like that for people. From You think back to the very beginning of the story in Eden, where you see in, in the very first humans a, a, a fear and a lack of trust and a vulnerability that's lost and blaming the other and not taking responsibility and all of these interpersonal problems. We see it here in Ephesus, this town where Paul's writing this letter. There's name-calling, there's separation, there's exclusion, there's different groups keeping one another apart. In actual fact, Paul even writes in, in verse 14, there's this dividing wall of hostility. Because we love to build wars, don't we? Now, sometimes we talk about building physical wars, which is kind of uh, in, the, in the news at the moment, isn't it, in, in some countries, to divide people apart. Sideswipe, sorry, sorry. Love, love, lovely American friends. <laughs> um, but also, like, met- we do that metaphorically. We don't just have to build a physical wall, do we? We separate ourselves from people that we think are different to us or we want to be different to us in, in some way. That's what, that's what Jack and Paul have been doing. They've built wars as they avoid each other, as they talk to other people and try and get different people on their side and things. They're kind of building their little groups. When, when Paul was writing this letter, there was actually a physical wall um, in the temple in Jerusalem. This is a, a kind of a picture of the temple. Uh, and there was this, this wall that was there and it separated uh, this area, which was called the Gentile Court. So that's where anyone could go from any nationality. And uh, there's this wall kind of here that, that stops anyone who isn't a Jew from going further into the temple. And, and so it was called the Gentile Wall, the non-Jewish wall. But on the wall were written some pretty, quite frankly, nasty messages, basically saying, Gentiles, you cross this wall on the pain of death you'll be struck down immediately and it'll be all your fault. Pretty kind of hostile, kind of warning sign written across the wall. And so it led to this pretty divisive relationship between the Jews in the church in Ephesus and and those who weren't Jews, those who were Gentiles. There was literally this, this divisive wall. But in Jesus, that wall is destroyed and, and, and is taken down. Not only is peace broken between us and God, but the divisions and the hostilities that exist between us, Jesus takes them down. Paul writes to these Christians, this church, and he says, in Jesus you are united together. There's no war between you. You are one. Actually, if you, if you just browse down from verse 14 scanning down to to the end of of the reading at 22. Just see how much unifying and restoring language there is. You've got peace, you've got being made one, barriers being destroyed. It's about one new humanity, one body, hostility being killed off, shared access, one spirit, fellow citizens, members of the same household, the same foundation, being in a building, a temple that is built together where God lives. It's just full of this unifying, restoring, putting together type language. And all of that, all of that, 
is in Jesus. It's actually how, how Paul starts his, his train of thought in verse 13. In Christ Jesus, by his blood. His blood has brought all types of people, and he's made us one in him. Now, when Paul's writing this, there's something unique going on theologically and historically. It's very significant. It's this idea that the, the cross of Christ has made the way open for people who aren't of a Jewish background to become one with those who are Jews and one with God. It's a way that people who aren't Jewish by background can come and be part of God's people. And so for most of us, that's us. Very significant thing. But also it's more than that. It's this beautiful depiction of how Jesus brings together people who are disparate and disconnected and divided and different, and he puts us together, and he makes us one. I mean, the, the imagery is so tight, isn't it? The, the, the stuff he's using, he says, one body. A body is pretty close, isn't it? There's different parts of your body are very tightly united. He talks about one household, one building, a temple for God to live in. That is what Jesus does in his cross. All we have to do is not totally mess it up. Don't let cracks appear in the walls. Don't kind of cut off parts of the body because you don't like them or you don't see need for them or they're different to you. Instead, prize and protect and enjoy and safeguard our unity. You see, where there is division, where there is disunity, where there is falling out and mistrust, where there is name-calling, where there is fear and blaming others, where we split off into different groups and factions, and in all sorts of subtle ways we make it hostile to others to belong and be with us, ways that we don't even realize. That is the kind of stuff that Jesus has come just to destroy and take away. It's the kind of stuff he does by his cross. He just destroys it and takes it away. For Jack and Paul in this situation, all of that stuff bubbling along below the surface, Jesus has come just to take that away. To make peace, make us one. See, this is really important to God. This unity in the church, this oneness is really, really important to God. As a fact, Paul goes on in the next chapter in Ephesians 3. You don't need to look at it, but he, he talks about it being the revelation of the mystery of Jesus that these people are brought together and made one in him. He says it's the way that the manifold wisdom of God is shown in the world. It's the way it's displayed. That God has come for all types of people and he has united us together as one. From different backgrounds. He has made us one. That is what shows how wise God is. That's how he shows his wisdom to the world. Whether we come from different cultures to one another, different nationalities, different personalities, different interests, different races, different sexes, with different ages or different wealth. Some have lots, some have little. Different relationship statuses, different employment statuses different skin colors, different intellects, different classes, different qualifications. Any which way you could look to distinguish or defi de define one another uh, as different or separate. 
It is God's wisdom to unite us together and make us one. This is wisdom. And it means so much to God that when Jesus gets, I'm sure he prayed for us more than this, but we have kind of one prayer basically recorded for us. Do you know that Jesus prayed for you in the Bible and it's written down? And that prayer is this, that we would be united together. That's his prayer. It's the prayer that we have, we overhear him saying for us, that we would be united just as he is one with the Father, that we would be one together. So listen, this is awkward, but look around the room. You guys in the front row, you're going to have to do it. I know British people don't like making eye Make some eye contact. In Jesus, you are one with these people. We are one. It's good you can smile. I didn't see any like. <laughs> we belong to each other. Belong to each other. And as intimately as your body holds together right now. That's the image, right? Belong to each other. That means this. Where we are different, where we are diverse, that is one of our greatest gifts. Because it reminds me that I'm not the full deal. I'm not everything that this church is or this church needs. No way, you are different to me. It reminds me I'm just a part of the body and you're a different part and I need you and you need me. And we belong to one another. And so where we're more different, we see that more truly and more really and more beautifully. And so it's more precious. It's part of the reason we want to grow in diversity. It's such a beautiful, such an important thing. Now here's the thing. What are we to do with that? This is stage two. We are to protect peace with each other. Sounds really simple, doesn't it? But man, do we find it hard. How often, how often have Christians fallen out and churches have torn apart? And God's wisdom to a watching world just looks foolish. Just looks foolish. See, the cross of Christ is our only hope for those fractures and where we might tear apart. It's the only hope. I want to just give three principles that we can, we can work on together to help safeguard our unity. First one is this. Say sorry and I forgive you often. Those of you who have done, um, done marriage, get back to marriage, marriage prep with us, know that we, can, we say this in, in our marriage prep. They say, the most important thing for you to say in your marriage to one another is not what most people think is, I love you. It's not. It's actually to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you. And hopefully you can also say, I love you, and it's a good thing to do that in your marriage. But I'm sorry and I forgive you are really important and right really at the heart of what we need to be doing in marriage. And it's just the same in the church. Just the same. And it's so basic, and yet it's so hard. You try teaching a young child to say sorry. But th- think about it. See if you can remember the last time someone in church apologized to you. Well, how about this? The last time you said sorry to someone in church. Because if you're struggling to remember, I think it shows that we find this hard. 
Because I can guarantee that people have caused offense against you and you against them, probably even today. (laughs) But certainly recently. See, both of these acts, I'm sorry and I forgive you, are costly and they require from us much humility. If we've done wrong, then saying sorry and owning it and kind of putting our hands up and even putting it into words is pretty embarrassing, right? And it's pretty humiliating. It's just easier to kind of let it go by and just let things, you know, just get better over time. But listen, the cross of Christ has outed us all as sinners. And so... It frees us to admit when we've done wrong and when we've hurt someone or whatever we've done. But actually, even, even saying, I forgive you if we're wronged against, is really quite costly. Because if you do that, and you do that properly, then you don't get to hold a grudge, you don't get to get your own back, you don't get to spread bad things about their name to other people in church anymore. They get away with it. They said sorry and it's gone. They got away with it. It's costly. It requires humility. But how much in Christ have you been forgiven by God? How can we withhold forgiveness from others when we've been given forgiven so much? Paul writes later on in the end of chapter 4, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, a life of love involves forgiveness, it involves sorry, it involves proactively seeking peace. We can't just say, yeah, we'll just, we'll just let stuff go, we'll just ignore it without resolving it and it'll be okay. Stuff stays and it sticks and it bubbles. Don't you think it'd be helpful with Jack and Paul? It'd be, sure, it's gonna be, there's gonna be awkward conversations, I'm not saying it's just straightforward, but wouldn't it be helpful if they had that awkward conversation? That kind of chat, sorry, I forgive you, Explaining a bit of stuff. Let's, let's go again. Let's work this stuff out. Wouldn't that be helpful rather than talking to everyone else about it? Just talking to one another. Sorting it out, keeping short accounts. Say sorry and I forgive you often. Now that is a challenge. This maybe helps us um, in this. Secondly, live at peace as far as it depends on you. You see, the Bible is realistic. It's beautifully realistic about this. Because we saw earlier that for true peace, you need hostility on both sides to end. And the truth is, we can't be responsible for both sides. But we are responsible for ourselves. So take care of yourself and trust God with your brother or sister. Paul writes another letter in Romans. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, if at all possible, live at peace. But sometimes, sometimes we might not get that peace if someone isn't willing to offer it, if someone isn't ready to respond to it. And I think there comes a point where we have to not worry about that. I'm going to be at peace as best I can with myself and with them, but I can't force it. You may have to carry in your heart just some of that unresolved pain and tension. 
And importantly, not let a root of bitterness take hold. So you've got to fight for pieces in your own heart often. So you can live freely. So, so with um, <clears throat> Jack and, and Paul. <clears throat> so if one of them wants to talk and humbly kind of pursues the other, wants to say sorry or, or, or restore a relationship and seek peace, but the other one's just like, no, uh, not interested, I don't want to talk, won't acknowledge there's an issue, won't resolve it, whatever else. Then there may be not, there may be kind of not much more that can be done. At least by, by the other one. Might need to be content with that. Here's the third one. We can all be mediators that encourage peace. So this is where you've got Marie and Janet and Barry. And they have a really important, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> they've got this really important role for, for Jack and for Paul because they've got a choice are they going to be conflict dampeners or conflict amplifiers hopefully you've got some musicians here you'll kind of get that kind of language are they going to um, help things settle down or are they going to be those who stir things up and make them worse you know, perhaps they needed to shut down a conversation a lot earlier or, or, or give a little challenge or rebuke in a conversation. Or maybe encourage Jack and Paul to talk to each other. Maybe even one of them needs to sit down with them to kind of broker and, and establish some peace. Certainly they don't need to chime in and add fuel to the fire and add their kind of two cents and take sides and, and various other things that was going on. You see, um, Paul, in another letter in Philippi, he pleads with the church. There's two women in the church who have fallen out. And Paul pleads with the church, members, the other people in the church, to help them find peace. Don't just leave them to it. Help them find peace. And so each of us, every one of us, has a role in protecting the peace of the body of Jesus. Now, I think this is important because... In a small church like ours that is tight, which is good, we have tight communities, we have good, deep relationships, such a joy and such a blessing. But there's a danger here, isn't there? There's a danger for us that we make stuff our business when it really isn't our business. That we talk about situations with people when they've really got nothing to do with us and our conversation can't really profitably achieve anything. The Bible calls that gossip. When we kind of always want to be in the know or get involved or have an opinion or a say or influence things, getting stuck in. A lot of that often comes from, we think, and sometimes we want him to help, and I'm sure often it does. Actually, often it is very unhelpful for establishing and keeping peace. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for peace is to stay out of it, stay back, to pray. So we can commit ourselves to being mediators that encourage peace. I promise three steps. Here's the, the very briefly, the final and third step as part of this peace project. It's this, is to expect peace in the world. See, this is a great kind of human ambition and hope, isn't it? It's all over our films and our songs and our novels, this kind of worldwide forever peace, real peace everywhere. But listen, this isn't a new or a modern thing. This has got its roots and an ancient hope at the heart of Christianity. 
Because we've seen, haven't we, today, it's not just the cross of Christ as one as personal peace with God. It's not even just that the cross has made us one with one another and given us a peace and a unity together in the church, but the cross of Christ is so amazing and so brilliant and so massive and transforming that it is one day going to achieve worldwide complete and full peace. Flip back over the page, Ephesians 1 verse 10. Paul writes about what God is doing in the world. This is his plan to bring unity to all things. Unity or peace to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You see, the church is just a sign of what's coming and what God is doing in the world, that he is restoring everything that's broken in the world forever. Everything that's become fractured and split apart, God is putting back together and will one day finally do that. It's not a promise of universal salvation for all people, but it is a promise of universal, the word is shalom, peace, in all of God's world for his people. And so if that's where we're heading, that is what we are to expect. That is our future and our hope. That is what we look forward to expectantly, full of joy. That is what we long for. And that is why, while we're waiting for that, the day when Christ returns to renew and restore all things, to bring peace on earth. That is why, while we wait for that, in the church, the community of peace, the people that have been made one, we protect and we fight for that unity and that peace. We live these kind of little cross-shaped lives where we forgive, where we say sorry, where we're humble, where we're costly, where we love, where we value those who are most different to us and we go out of our ways to seek after them. Because in Christ, God has made us all one. Let's pray. God, the, uh, the extent and the scope and the depth of what you have done in the cross is quite amazing. Sorry we so often make it so small and so just pathetic, actually, in how we think about it. Thank you for all of this reconciliation with you, with one another, and eventually with the whole world that you give to us in Christ. Please help us to be people of reconciliation. Please would this church be a place, a community of peace and reconciliation that we might actually display your wisdom, your beauty and your greatness to a watching world. Amen.